The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right. Hello. Welcome. Disability Law Show. We are back at it. So good to have you along for the ride. John Scholes here with me. Uh, partner, Sam Fury, Tamar and LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country, would be Tamar Agopian. Going to be uh, spreading the knowledge here today, answering all of your questions. And we're going to get to a ton of email today because they've been backing up a little bit. Anytime you can send an email, it might appear on a future show, but either way, it'll get answered by uh, Tamar and her team if you have any questions anytime. That would be help at disabilityrights.ca. And to reach Tamar and her team, you can do that by phone, have a lengthier conversation with uh, with all your needs, uh, 1-855-821-5900. And another place for you to ask questions anonymously, by the way, would be mydisabilityquestions.com. As mentioned, Tamar, going to get into the emails here very shortly. But first, you got a couple things on your plate you want to discuss. What's going on, pal? Absolutely. This week was uh, an interesting one, John, because we got to do live, or not live, but uh, pre- pre-recording our TV show together this yes. week. Um, and so I thought I'd start off uh, talking about that on the show because, you know, it's something that's really quite unique to our firm, this idea of trying to get as much information out there for individuals as we can with all of these different resources. Our, our long-running television show being one of them, mm-hmm. the Disability Law Show, along with these radio shows that we do. We have lots of resources on our website and a couple of other websites as well, like pocketemploymentlawyer.ca and ltdfaq.ca. But the television one in particular was kind of an interesting angle because, you know, it was something that I knew the firm did before I joined the firm, something that I was interested in doing right out of the gates. Uh, But, you know, typically it's just James and Savan talking about disability law and with COVID and everything else, there wasn't a really good opportunity. And this week, you know, finally I got into the studio. And so if people are wondering, gosh, what does this this woman look like? (laughs) And take take a look. Hopefully uh, I sound the same and look the same, but anyway. (laughs) uh, But uh, but you can find these uh, television shows, obviously, on our media tab, on our website, uh, and just really helpful information, folks, around you know, various topics that we talk about on the radio as well, but also going through some emails. Uh, you know, we've got a couple of shows that we run as a panel but with a couple of the lawyers together, John, as you know. And that is also a nice way for us to share ideas and provide insight out there. Because that's really the the biggest thing here is that when people are dealing with disability insurers, usually it's the first time they're ever dealing with a disability insurer. And the process can be really daunting. You don't really know what it, what's normal, quote unquote, what's not. You know, when should I be worried about things changing or, you know, things happening with my disability claim? And these are the resources that are absolutely free, completely mm-hmm. anonymous. You just click and play and you get the information that you need. And then you have at least some information about your rights and you can make some choices after that, whether you want to have a conversation with us perhaps, whether you want to pursue a legal claim from there, depending on what the situation is. And with that, you can reach out anytime with these concerns or any more. I want to give you that number again, one 821 5900 And by the way, you're an absolute natural on TV. If you haven't caught that show, you can do Thanks. so. Just go to disabilityrights.ca. At the top, you'll see a Knowledge Center banner, a little thing you can click on there, drop-down menu, and it'll uh, it'll lead you to our long-running TV show, which you are awesome at. So you're you're so good. You might be taking my job, man. That's all I'm saying. So I got to watch out for you. <laughs> what, uh, what, what, else we, uh, what else we got going on? 
What else is going on? So mm-hmm. I had an interesting discussion with a client this week that I, I'm not going to get into the details because, of course, our client's privacy is is of utmost importance. But I'm going to talk about something generally that came up in our conversation that does come up quite a bit for people who are, whether our clients or even during the process with the disability insurer. And that's this question around, should I be attempting to return back to work? We get mm-hmm. this question a lot. And oftentimes I have to say to people, it's actually not a legal question. This is kind of a medical question. It's it's that swim lane that you need to consult with your medical team around whether or not a return to work makes sense. By the way, regardless of whether you've got an ongoing legal claim or regardless of whether or not your disability insurer is saying, yeah, we're going to cut you off, right? You want to try and make that decision as independently as you can consulting the people who are in your corner, which includes obviously your doctor, uh, typically, and your family members, yourself, of course, and then you make that choice. And so when you've started a legal claim against the disability insurer, I want to disabuse this notion that you are then stuck in time or that you're stuck into a situation that you can't then make any other choices beyond just challenging the disability insurer. Nothing could be further from the truth, John. And, and James talks about this. I talk about it, Savannah. We all discuss this because we really do want to see our clients recover, get better, and be able to get back to work. That is the absolute best outcome for any of our clients. Because at that point, then we know we've supported them for the period of time that they needed to be supported. It can make sometimes the disability claim, the legal claim, much, much easier to resolve with the insurer if that return to work was successful. And obviously, it limits any sort of legal fees that may be associated with the claim as well. So a lot of upsides to that return to work. I think where it becomes tricky, though, is when it's driven solely by the financial need. And I think that's what's concerning me the most about individuals is, you know, the disability claim ends or the disability insurer cuts you off and you're now in a difficult financial situation and you're feeling that desperation to try and push yourself back to work, regardless of what your doctors might be saying, in order to get some financial compensation. And to me, that's like the antithesis of what should be happening in disability, right? The whole idea of disability benefits is that it is a peace of mind policy. That's what it's there for. The insurance company should be paying you that benefit until you do get to that point where you've recovered sufficiently that a return to work makes sense. Not the opposite, where they, you know, basically pull the plug on your income and then force you essentially back to work because you really cannot survive without that that uh, financial support. So, you know, tough situation for people to be in. There's lots of government supports that are accessible out there if you need to while you take on the disability insurer, perhaps challenge them by way of a legal claim. But it's also a boon because we're not charging anyone anything, John. We work exclusively on contingency. So you're not, you know, sending up a retainer. You're not spending any money on retaining our firm and our services to advance this legal claim against the insurance company. And really, if we're not successful in getting money on their behalf, you pay us nothing. So there's no downside on that part. I just, I my concern really is this idea of coming to a lawyer or coming to me and having that discussion with me about should I be going back to work? And I'm just going to keep going back to say, what are your own doctors saying? How do you feel about this? Let's try and leave aside all of the other issues of financial 
and you know uh, the the potential legal claim, and let's make this decision that's going to be best for you. Because once you go back, if you're going to set yourself back from a health perspective, ten steps, then that's not helping anyone. You want to make sure that you're ready to start that process, and there's something in place for when you do make that attempt to return to work at your work setting. Have you found that this has been financially so overbearing on occasion that somebody will even go against their doctor's orders of no, you're not going back and do it anyway because they feel too much pressure? You know, I, I, I can count on one hand, John. So it's not that common because Good. usually what we try and do is support our clients or support claimants it once their benefits have been cut off with other sources that we can access for them. Um, while we take the time to try and resolve these claims... We also try and resolve them as quickly as we can, John, because we mm. know people need the financial funds, right? So, you know, we've got a lot of degree, a high degree of success in doing that through a mediation process, matter of months, you know, usually within a year of being retained. And so, you know, all of that being said, have I seen people go back against medical advice? Yes. And in those instances, and I, I can think of maybe one or two, John, in the last couple of years, and th the return to work was not successful. And yeah. so they, the individual found themselves, you know, right back to square one. Um, they made the attempt, uh, you know, the health issues persisted, the work environment was not favorable for their health, and they had to go off again. And so, you know, it, was there anything lost in that process? Perhaps not. But I think what concerns me, and in one instance, this was a big deal, was you sometimes get a lot of physical therapies for a physical disability, for example, you make significant progress. And you can most definitely compromise that progress if you rush back to work too soon when you're doing a physical job. It just makes natural sense, right, John? If your body isn't fully healed and you're going back against medical advice, then you are going to do more harm than good and then set yourself back. So all of that progress that you made with all the therapies and what have you is now out the window because, you know, you felt that pressure, frankly, put by the insurance company to go back. And when this happens, courts have recognized that the insurance company is entitled or should be awarded, I suppose, uh, damages against them. So, you know, this could be a situation where there is a good basis for either mental distress damages or some kind of financial ramifications because, you know, it's really not fair. It's not right if the insurance company denied the claim prematurely forced you back into a work setting, you've now taken several steps back from a health perspective, that is an enhancement in terms of what compensation right. you may be entitled to if a judge is going to look at this critically and say, hey, insurance company, what are you guys doing in a situation like this? So look, it's a long road, I suppose, but it's an important one. And I think that I wanted to just have our listeners hear from me that if you're thinking about a return to work, don't hesitate, but do have the discussion with the right people, which is your family, and your and your medical team behind you, and always uh, always feel free to reach out to Tamar as well. That uh, that way is one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Let's uh, we'll start on Bill's email here, then we'll take a break and come back to it. But Bill writes and says, "Tomorrow, my doctor wrote a letter to my insurer after my adjuster said they were going to cut me off. I'm worried that the letter actually made things worse, though." I have significant physical issues, and my doctor wrote that my symptoms are mostly because of psychological issues like anxiety and depression. Should I get him to retract his letter, or should I get a new doctor? I'm really worried that my insurer is going to use this to justify cutting me off. What a great question, Bill. So uh, I'm going to start off by saying this. Just because you started off with one health issue or a couple of health issues to begin with, and I think Bill's describing to us you know, some physical things, 
And then that sort of mutated or translated into developing some mental health conditions doesn't mean that you're not still entitled to disability benefits. It doesn't necessarily have to be just that one thing, that one health issue that gets you to continue getting your disability benefits. So just because it's changed doesn't mean it will compromise your entitlement to ongoing disability benefits. But let's pick this up after our break, John. You bet. We sure will. In the meantime, here's the number to reach tomorrow and your team anytime. one 821 5900 That email address I just wrote came from help at disabilityrights.ca. And as we uh, briefly mentioned, tomorrow did at the opening a nice place for you to learn more anytime. Uh, small memos, interesting memos that you can learn from easily navigated online, ltdfaq.ca. We'll return. More Disability Law Show is coming up. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And we're back. Yeah, Disability Law Show. Thanks so much for tuning in again this week. I want to reach out to Tamara Gopin, who's a partner, San Firu Tamarkin LLP. It's simple. Uh, phone number first, right? one 821 5900 Email address is always an option. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And I'll give you a website where you can ask anonymous questions anytime. Even search to see if your question has been asked by someone else, which would be a convenient Time saver, you don't have to punch it in, but you can leave it there. If not, it'll get answered, mydisabilityquestions.com. Tomorrow, talking about Bill, who was worried about a letter that his uh, doctor yeah. wrote, think, okay, this is going to lead to a swift and significant cutoff. What do you think about it again? Well, so the way that the Bill described it to us was that, you know, he said, look, my doctor made it seem like it was I was off work mostly because of psychological issues. And I wanted to validate that that is a good basis to be off on disability, particularly if your doctor's saying, this is why you're off, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, the test for total disability, and, and I'm assuming Bill is still in the own occupation phase of the policy, John. So in other words, the insurance company is looking to see what health issues there are and how that prevents him from returning to his own job, the job he was doing before he stopped working due to his health. And I'm not concerned, I don't think, about this idea that the doctor is writing that it is now more of a mental health condition or claim than it is a physical one. Now, of course, disability insurers are, are known not to have the greatest awareness around mental health, and it can be a bit more of a challenge, I suppose, to get claims adjusters to understand how it impacts an individual to the degree that it it prevents them from working. But, you know, I'm, if I'm Bill, I'm not going out and shopping new doctors right now. That's not the answer <laughs> yeah. here. And, and I don't know if retraction is really going to get you uh, that far. But it's certainly if Bill feels that there are physical components that are still ongoing for the health conditions, then an addendum, an add-on report, or some clarification from a doctor to include that information could be helpful for sure. So when these kinds of reports happen, John, you know, sometimes it's generated by the insurance company. They'll write a letter to your doctor directly and they'll say, hey, we would like to know what's happening with Bill. They may even ask specific questions to the doctor around what are the current health issues? What's the treatment plan? You know, what's your expectation around Bill returning back to work? And they will use those responses from the doctor as part of their analysis as to whether or not someone's disability claim is to continue. Sometimes they even go off and have another doctor review it. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment. 
But just to close the loop on the information that your doctor is providing to the insurance company, that information is critical. It's critical because otherwise the insurance company is making decisions in a vacuum. And the last thing I want is for someone's benefits to be cut off when there wasn't up-to-date medical information available to the insurance company. At least if it's directed to your own doctors, you want to make sure that they're responding to those requests, okay? If the insurance company is going to cut off for that reason, please give me a call because it's not a good enough reason. But anyway, I just wanted to focus on the fact that the the reporting, the things that the doctor is writing and articulating around what the disability is, is very, very important and should be comprehensive each and every time. You want to make sure your doctor's not leaving anything out. So if it's a constellation of health issues, which is what I talk about a lot, mental health, cognitive, emotional, physical, then you want the doctor to outline all of those things so that the insurance company has assessing is assessing all of that. And what I was saying in that assessment was this idea of the insurance company actually going out and getting a review done by one of their own doctors around this information that's been submitted. That's usually a paper review, or at least it's that's the starting point. And it is exactly what you would expect. The papers get sent to some doctor, some hired gun from the insurance company. They only look at the papers and they too will provide an opinion to the adjuster around whether or not you are still totally disabled. And so they're not going to talk to your doctors. They're going to talk to you. (laughs) They may not even talk to your adjuster. They're just going to strictly look at whatever information the claims adjuster spoon fed to this doctor and answer the two or three questions that have been directed to them, one of which inevitably is, are there any contraindications for this individual to go back to work? Basically, is there any barriers? And are those barriers compensable, right? Should the disability benefit continue to be paid? So, you know, these paper reviews, look, the courts have said they're not worth the paper they're written on, quite frankly. A lot of the time, yeah, they're going to just defer to your own medical team, which is why, full circle, what your doctors write and say about the basis of your disability claim is so, so important. So, Make sure you've got a clear sight line with your own team about what's being written, what information is being provided to the insurance company, and that it's being done on a timely way so that there is a complete picture for the insurance company to make that assessment. And if your own doctors are still supporting that you're totally disabled and the insurance company makes you know, the dodo decision to cut off your claim anyway, uh, then know that you do have some rights uh, and that you are absolutely entitled to ongoing disability benefits in a situation like that rights you have but you don't know how to exercise them unless you reach out you won't do it on your own so uh tomorrow's advice always is to make that phone call at least get some clarity have a conversation before you go any further 1-855-821-5900 is how you go about doing that um say someone's approved for short-term disability you know for the amount of weeks that they're getting that does it mean they're automatically logged in approved for ltd as well or is that another mountain to climb it can be it can be. So so my quick answer to that is is a no. So it's not necessarily an automatic. So if, if you're in the short-term disability phase, please don't assume that you're necessarily going to transition to long-term. And here's why. Generally speaking, the short-term disability period is actually paid by employers, generally. Not always, but mostly. And what ends up happening is the employer will have a third-party provider sometimes even an insurance company who is administering or adjudicating the short-term disability claim. What does that mean? You're a claimant, you're, you're, you're disabled, your doctor's putting you off work, you submit these forms. The forms go to this third party, whether it's an organization, a company, basically not your employer because it's private information from your employer. And that third party 
will evaluate and look to see whether or not you meet the test of disability. And if so, you'll get an approval letter, but the money will actually come from your employer. And what's challenging for individuals is that if it is an insurer doing what's called an ASO or an administrative services uh, organization doing this administration of the short-term claim, people just assume, oh yeah, okay, but they're going to pay my long-term. I'm just going to transition after the first four months or six months of short-term into long-term. And that sometimes is not the case. And so if you're on this path of short-term disability, and I would say, find out exactly what the maximum period is. Is it 17 weeks? Is it 26 weeks? Which mm-hmm. is basically four to six months. And where in that time frame are you supposed to apply for long-term? And ask that question to whoever is looking at your short-term claim and say, hey, by the way, should I be applying for a long-term? Do I need to make that application? What's happening with my long-term claim? So that A, you don't miss the time frame if you do have to make another application. And B, you want to make sure that the right entity is notified. Because if it's a third-party administrator on behalf of the employer and there's no insurer involved, I can assure you that the long-term disability insurer doesn't necessarily know that you've got this short-term That's right. claim, right? No. So if you're not notifying and you're not going down that path early enough, there could be a compromise of you accessing long-term if the insurance company turns down and says, well, you applied late. So we didn't know early enough. And our policy says we need to know within a certain period of time and you didn't apply in that time frame. So they're going to try and use a technical reason to bat you away, have you go away. We don't want to even look at your disability claim because you were late. And John, I've seen this be triggered, by the way, over a matter of days, like 12 days, 10 days. Like it's absurd, but this is what insurance companies do. They will use the most aggressive and easiest basis for them to, to, to deny the claim out of the gates, not even consider your disability claim, even though their lawyers know what I know, which is those kinds of technicalities will typically be forgiven if it's taken into a legal claim. This is what makes it so difficult for people. So look, if you're in short term, just make sure you know exactly when to apply for long term. Don't delay that process. Make that application if you need to. Don't make the assumption that you're going to transition unless you have something in writing, in writing from the insurance company, the long-term insurer saying, no, you know what? You don't need to bother to make another application. We're going to get all the short-term disability documentation and that should be enough, but get it in writing because there's one insurer, John, who likes to always argue and has Mm -hmm. argued and lost, by the way, in front of the (laughs) court that because there was no LTD application, that there was no entitlement to LTD. And they've had their wrist slap a couple of times for doing that. Uh, but but let's not that let's not let our listeners be those individuals. I don't want them That's doing right. the test cases. I'd much prefer they take a more cautious approach on these things and ensure that they've got the right uh, application materials out there for the insurance company to really look at the disability claim itself and not deny it on a technical. <laughs> Always a great option for you to join the show. You can do that through email. We read them out on here Aaron, and answer them. You might get yours on a future show. It is help at disabilityrights.ca. And uh, Michelle, up next, says, uh, tomorrow I suffer from fibromyalgia and was approved for LTD last year. My family doctor and specialist have been closely monitoring my condition to ensure my treatment is appropriate. In February, my insurance company sent me for an assessment, and their doctor recommended different medication. When I spoke with my GP and specialist, they both said the medications recommended by the insurance doctor will help in the short term, but since they are narcotics, they're highly addictive and have a serious side effect and are not a long-term solution. So I'm following my doctor's advice and staying with the medications they recommended. But now my adjuster told me that my benefits are getting cut off because I'm, quote, not compliant with recommended treatment. 
how can they force me to take the drugs that my doctors say will harm me? <sighs> Michelle, Boing. they cannot force you. Yeah. <laughs> they can't force you. Don't do it. Uh, look, I I'm being a little bit cheeky in my response here, but this is a serious situation, John, where you've got the insurance company saying, this is the treatment we think you need. And Michelle's own medical team saying, no, this is just a short-term solution. In fact, for her long-term health and well-being, she needs to be doing treatment B or whatever whatever that option is for Michelle. And she describes she's got fibromyalgia, which is also one of those conditions, John, that it's a diagnosis of exclusion. In other words, the doctors will do a number of tests, they'll look at a bunch of different things, and when they conclude that it's not any of those other things, they will conclude that you've got fibro. And what's rele relevant to that diagnosis to Michelle's situation is the fact that there is no one-size-fits-all with fibromyalgia treatment. You can have two different rheumatologists, two different family doctors, a uh, number of other specialists disagree on what the right course of action is for Michelle. And so I always give the advice that if your own medical team is recommending a certain path and that you've she sounds like she's got a specialist as well. So she's got multiple doctors on her side saying, this is the way you should go. That is the recommendation that you should follow. Look, the insurance company's goal is short-term because if they can pump you with something, some medication, or I think she says narcotics here, and get short-term relief for you, then they can justify that that short-term relief is sufficient for it to cut off your claim and get you back to work. Either way, they win right? They get to bring your disability claim to an end without really looking at what the long-term effects could be, the addictive nature of certain drugs, for example, like narcotics, and what it might do to your health on, on a longer-term basis. So I really don't like the idea of Michelle capitulating to the insurer, but I can absolutely appreciate the frustration around, well, hang on, mm -hmm. how is it that it could be that these benefits are now going to come to an end? Compliance issues are tricky when the insurance company raises them. And I can tell you very rarely are they found in favor of the insurer. Because if the overall thing is not reasonable, this, this is the guiding point in everything, reasonableness. If it's not reasonable in this situation, then it is not something that the insurer will be able to stand behind and get before a judge and say, yep, we did the right thing here. So follow your own medical team's advice, Michelle. And I think we should do a deeper dive around the compliance issue and challenging the disability insurer with a legal claim. Michelle, you're awesome. Thank you so much for contributing to the show. And you can reach out with a phone call now, which I know you will with that further discussion with Tamara and her team. And to do that, 1-855-821-5900. And we'll get to another email here in just a couple minutes as we slide into a quick break. And that would be help at disabilityrights.ca. Any other quick memos you want to learn and have questions about LTD, that's available and built already called ltdfaq.ca. So have a look at that as well as we continue. The Disability Law Show, stand by. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. Good to have you here, John Scholes. And uh, with me as well this week, again, Tamar Agopian, partner, Sam Firu, Tamarkin, LLP. Reach out anytime to have a uh, 
a chat with Tamar for uh, yourself. Maybe someone who's a little shy and nervous, doesn't want to reach out themselves. You could do that for a colleague or a family member, but don't sit on it. You want to at least get the information, have a chat. It'll cost you nothing just to get some clarity. And the number to reach Tamar and her team, 1-855-821-5900. And the email address we use on the show here as well is help at disabilityrights.ca. Let me ask you this tomorrow before we get into a, another email here. What does it mean when the insurer denies LTV because of health issues is pre-existing? I mean, don't we all have one of those? I mean, is there any way to challenge that type of decline, right? Yeah, there there are ways to challenge that type of decline. And, you know, pre-existing condition clauses can be one of those clauses in a disability policy that varies actually from policy to policy. So the starting point of any analysis around whether you can challenge your insurer who has said, we're denying you because your disability claim is pre-existing, is to actually get a copy of the policy wording and the actual wording of your pre-ex clause. I would like to see it because no two are the same and they are very important on challenging these kinds of situations. Because here's the way it works, John. If your disability really typically will arise within that first year of you being covered by this plan, so generally it's new employees to a, a new employer, a new group plan. If your disability arises in that first year, the insurance company will look to see if the disability stems from a health issue that you had before you were covered or within that first period of time that you were covered. Again, the period of time changes from policy to policy. So you want to know what is that period of time that the insurance company is interested in and what are they looking for? Because some policies say if you got treatment for the health issue, for example, that's going to trigger the pre-existing condition clause. Others will say if you got care from a physician, that will trigger the pre-existing condition clause. Some will say if you had any sort of diagnostics, so x-rays or blood work or bone scans or something like that, that will trigger the pre-existing condition clause. So the, the way that it's described then becomes important. But really what the insurance company ultimately is looking for is some kind of medical connection between what you're claiming disability for today versus what your past health history looked like. And not forever, John. There's a period of time specifically that they're looking at and whether or not there was quote unquote treatment in that period of time. Where I find that there is a good breeding ground for challenging the disability insurer is if their clauses say things like symptoms or diagnoses, or don't say those words, for example, if they don't have those specific terms. So think of a scenario where, you know, sadly, you might be diagnosed with something like cancer, something pretty significant. And in the time period beforehand, you had a scan of some kind related to that cancer condition. Is that going to trigger the pre-existing condition clause? Could that be sufficient to allow the insurance company to deny your claim for your cancer treatment and, you know, convalescence around the cancer? Uh, is that a sufficient basis for an LTD claim? I don't know. I don't know. And this is why I don't want individuals to sort of see this harsh wording around pre-ex and think to themselves, yeah, you know what? I had that back issue last year. I got some medicine for that. And now I'm off because my knee is hurting. And the insurance yeah. company is saying it's pre-existing, right? It's not related. It's not related. If there's no medical connection between the two, then there's absolutely a basis to challenge it but it gets tricky only because it is an on or off type thing. Think of it as a light switch. Either the right. insurance company is on and they have and you have coverage and they should be paying or the light switch is off 
and they are you are not covered because they can use this exclusion to bar your claim to close that door and the courts have said it's either an on or off there's no gray area when you're talking about an exclusion in a disability policy it's contractual Let's move on to Barry. More information, sure. more questions always. Barry says, hey, Tamar, this past February, I fell on ice when I walked out from a store. I broke my pelvis and left ankle. I'm 39 and I just started a new retail job a couple of months before the accident. I hadn't been able to go back to work and I've had to ask my siblings for help at home and with my kids. When my husband went back to complain about all the ice, he was told that this was not the first time this year and that there were issues with the guy he was supposed to salt the area. He also took photos showing all the ice. Very smart. Uh, what can or should we do now? Really good question, Barry. So, Look, I think the the main thing when you fall on ice is that you want to make sure that you are reporting this and there is contemporaneous, quote unquote, same time, like within the same time of mm -hmm. what condition existed there and putting on notice whoever is the owner of the space. So for example, if it's a municipal sidewalk, John, there's like a week or so where you've got to provide notice officially to the municipality that you have sustained a fall and injuries relating yep. to conditions on the sidewalk. And if you don't, you're not entitled to then bring a legal claim to challenge the municipality for having failed to maintain the sidewalk, for example, in a proper order, in a proper condition that would have prevented you from falling. In Barry's situation, I don't think it's a municipality. I'm not entirely clear. But at the very least, the good news is, is that they have photos of the conditions. Yes. So if someone was required to maintain that area and keep that area in, in a in a safe environment so that people could walk on it without injury, then that could open the door for what's called a tort claim. It's a claim that you would bring for pain and suffering against an individual or a company or a party that was negligent and that that negligence resulted in your injuries. So that's where I'm sort of seeing Barry's claim progress is that a potential tort claim which, by the way, we have lots of experience doing as well. Of course. And coupled with that is the potential that in that tort claim, not only is Barry going to be seeking compensation for his pain and suffering around the, the, the ankle issue, the pelvis issue, but also there's an economic loss claim there, John, for his inability to work. And so he could recoup those funds along with what he was potentially needing to help support you know, his children and what was happening on the home front. Because in a tort claim, you can also have family members who can be involved in a legal claim to seek their compensation for the time and support that they offered to help Barry with, you know, with his convalescence and, and his, uh, his recovery and so on. So a little bit different complexion, I would say, than a disability legal claim. But by the same token, it's not necessarily the end of the line. So what I would like to see Barry do is actually take those active steps and consider bringing forward that legal claim when there is evidence that says, you know, yeah, they were supposed to salt this area and they've had lots of issues in the area. Had there been other falls in that area, then it does open the door for that type of a negligence claim and to get compensation for those buckets, those buckets of compensation that I call it, as it relates to that tortfeasor or the negligent uh, party. And it's always good to have those pictures, especially seasonal when it's wintertime. But even if you're in a, you know, a grocery store and there's some water on the ground and the veggies, just have everybody's got a phone 
take your pictures. You might never need them, but it's always good to have them and have those uh, contemporaneous accounts for sure. Barry, thanks, man. Appreciate the email. You want to reach out to tomorrow to have a further conversation, which I'm sure is uh, is coming up. one 821 5900 That goes for you as well, not just Barry. You can use that number anytime. And the email address, again, help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll get to more of the show after a short break. Disability Law Show continues. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right, a few minutes to go here, a disability law show, but just because the show is going to end doesn't mean you can't reach out and ask some questions and uh, learn a lot and get some help for sure with Tamara Gobian and her team, San Fierro to Market LLP is where they reside. You want to call one 855 821 and help at disability We were talking about uh, basically a slip and on some ice with, uh, with Barry before the break, sent an email into you guys about compensation possibly for his family and going back to work and all this stuff. It's, it's complex, but uh, LTD benefits potentially get injuries have impact on LTD. I know you talked about this being a tort claim last, uh, last segment uh, tomorrow, but what's the relationship there? Really good question, and 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 one that we don't actually talk a lot about on the show, but there could be an interplay between, you know, what happens with a tort claim, so a claim for negligence against a negligent party, and pursuing disability benefits. Mm -hmm. Barry said something to us about having started a new job and not being able to continue that job uh, after his injury. And so I have to wonder, John, whether he does have access to short-term and long-term disability benefits at his employer. And, you know, I think it, it, there's value in actually pursuing it. So if I'm him, you know, I'd like to give him that advice that he should make those applications and see what kind of response he gets from the disability insurer, because really that's what's there from an income support perspective. But bearing in mind that these disability policies also contemplate recovery from third parties for lump sum amounts or compensation in these kinds of settings like tort claims. And so again, this is one area where no two disability policies are necessarily the same. But you know how when we talk, John, about offsets or deductions that insurance companies can get against the LTD benefit? This is similar in that way, that there's sometimes language embedded in these disability policies that say, if you come into some money or compensation from the person or entity who caused your disability. In other words, in Barry's situation, if it is found that the area was not well-maintained and that was negligent and therefore from that negligence flows compensation to him, then the LTD insurer could potentially get some measure of credit for what he would potentially receive in his compensation from the, the tort claim. But there's a lot of debate, John, around limits around that because it's not apples to apples, right? If if Barry's getting damages for pain and suffering, that's not the same as long-term disability benefits by way of income. So I think that, you know, it would be worth having a very careful look to see what the words say in the policy and then providing Barry a little bit of insight and advice if he is getting long-term disability, what may happen once his tort claim resolves and whether or not that drives any sort of credits back towards the disability insurer. Generally speaking, the apples to apples analysis is the one that stands, which is if you're getting income, then there is that credit or offset to the disability insurer. Otherwise, my view of it is that they don't get their their dirty little hands on it, frankly. (laughs) So you should be able to get that compensation free and clear from the disability insurer. 
I think we have time for Kalen's email. Kalen, thank you so much. Says, I have a serious heart condition that came on suddenly a few years ago. My cardiologist instructed me to stop working as my job is physically demanding. Any sort of stress gets my heart going and I get dizzy, lose my breath. One time I had to be rushed to the ER. Despite this, my insurance adjuster has requested I attend an examination for a second opinion. Should I be worried? I wouldn't be worried <laughs> just yet, Kaylin. <laughs> you know, I, I think at the end of the day, because he's got these conditions that are hard to determine, hard to see, and perhaps not present all the time, it doesn't surprise me that the insurance company wants to get a better understanding from a health perspective as to whether or not he's got the level of function to be able to work. And that's really the focus for the insurance company is, great, we understand you've got anxiety, we understand you've got an ankle issue, we've got understanding, you know, like Kaylin's situation, you've got a heart condition. But do, do does that health issue, does do those health issues prevent you from being able to work essentially at most of what you were doing at your workplace before your health prevents you from working. In other words, can the insurance company string together some level of function to say, well, if you're not having the episode, you're able to continue working and you may want to roll the dice on those episodes or perhaps getting some kind of accommodation put in place at work instead of the disability insurer actually paying those benefits. So the question really was, should I attend an examination for the insurance company for a second opinion. Typically, those examinations are what's called IMEs, ind independent medical examinations. They're not independent, John. Nope. <laughs> They're paid nope. for by the insurance company. So there is an inherent bias there. And the insurance company is really just looking for some answers. Most of the policies, though, the disability policies say, if they require this kind of an examination of you or assessment go. of you, you have to attend, unfortunately. Okay. So the downside is, Kaylin, that yes, it, it sometimes you're sort of scratching your head thinking, well, I've provided the insurance company all this medical information. Why do they want another opinion? Well, they want to explore the limits of what it is that you're capable of doing. My suspicion is they're going to send you to some kind of physical assessment. And from that physical assessment, they're going to draw their conclusions as to whether or not your benefits should continue while you're sort of figuring out what's happening from a health perspective and whether there's a treatment plan that works in your situation, Kaylin. So again, I wouldn't be worried per se. It's not like the insurance company is saying, we're cutting you off tomorrow, and you do have to participate, but there are things you can do even when you participate. In other words, make sure you keep your own account of what's happening. How did you feel after the assessment? Make sure your own medical team is aware that you're attending the assessment, because if there is a need for what I call a rebuttal report, some kind of a response to the insurance company's assessment, then you want to make sure your medical team is there and available to provide that kind of support and response. Because again, as I said, these kinds of examinations and assessments can be inherently biased. And so you want to have someone in your corner to be able to respond to anything that a doctor may say to the insurance company about your ability to I guess it's worth mentioning, not confusing the fact that you have to go to this IME, you have to go because it's in your policy versus them telling telling you where to get your treatment, two different animals, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, there's two different ways that they do this. One is an IME for an examination um, mm -hmm. to get a medical opinion as to where you're at from a health perspective. The other is a potential assessment to figure out where you're at, same, same idea, but specifically to try and put a treatment plan in place that would support Kalen essentially to get back to work, right? Because that's really what the insurance company is looking for is, you know, if we do an IME, you know, will it support that this person can work right now? So we're going to cut it off. Or are we going to do an assessment, 
put them on some kind of an eight-week treatment plan, and at the end of that, then say to this individual, yep, you're ready to work. Either way, the insurance company is using tools to try and bring that disability claim to an end because mm -hmm. once it ends, they're not paying you and they're making money, right? Getting the premium and not paying out the benefit. And with that, we are just about out of time. Always good stuff. Wonderful information. You can follow up with lots more beyond this hour of radio every week. How do you do that uh, with Tamar? Easy. Try a phone call, right? one 821 5900 is the way you do that. Email we always use, help at disabilityrights.ca. The website to ask more questions, you can type them in. It's searchable, so maybe your question has already been asked and answered, mydisabilityquestions.com. And I want to remind you as well, if you go to disabilityrights.ca, the website, there's a drop-down menu under the Knowledge Center. You can find links to our long-running radio shows and archive and our TV show, of which uh, tomorrow is part as well. So you can do that at your leisure. And we'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.